Well, today is Transfiguration Sunday, and so our scripture this morning comes from Matthew chapter 17, the first 20 verses. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up, up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud, a voice said, this is my son, the beloved, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, get up and do not be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He replied, Elijah is indeed coming and will, will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him. But they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood what he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. When they came to the crowd, a man came to him, knelt before him, and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Jesus answered, you faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of, came out of him. And the boy was cured instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move it from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. By your grace and through your mercy, we pray that you would allow these words to come, to point to the word just read, and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ, for we pray this in his name. Amen. The history of scientific and mathematical research is populated by hundreds of thousands of names, not the least of whom was the 17th century physicist and math mathematician Blaise Pascal. We have Pascal to thank for the early invention of the calculator, for time-tested theories about the fluctuations of barometric pressure, and for some of the foundational theorems behind the pr principles of probability. And if you think that I understand anything about what I just told you, you are misled. Toward the end of his very short life, and he died at the age of 39, Pascal turned his mind to the considerations of philosophy and religion. His writings are considered classics even today. And included in his writings is a philosophical argument known as Pascal's Wager. And it posits that all human beings bet their life on whether or not God exists. Pascal posed that the rational bet in this regard is to believe in and to live as if God exists. 
If God exists, the payoff is infinite. If God doesn't exist, well, what did it matter anyway? And after Pascal died, his housekeeper, while collecting all of his clothing, noticed that there was a stitching inside of his coat, as if somebody had sewed something into the lining. And so the housekeeper undid the stitching, and she found a piece of paper. And on the piece of paper was Pascal's writing, and it began like this. The Year of Grace, 1654. Monday, 23rd November. Feast of St. Clement, from about half past ten at night until about half past midnight. Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, God of the philosophers, certitude, certitude, feeling joy, peace. Now, it's not to us to try to understand or explain what happened to Pascal that night, that night of November 23rd, 1654. But his only word that he used to describe it was fire. Suffice it to say that it was an encounter with the living God that likely not only altered the course of his life, but was also so seminal that his account of it, he sewed into his coat as if sewing it into his soul for no one else to know or see other than him. You know, the history of humankind, among many things, is the history of the encounter with the transcendent. In Christian terms, we call this a theophany, which means the appearance of God. Theophany is the moment, that deeply personal, private, and spiritual moment when a person encounters in some mysterious way the reality of God. And it's a moment that can barely be described and is seldom understood by anyone else. It can happen standing on the beach watching a sunset. It can happen staring into a dark night at stars or in watching your baby take their first breath. It can happen in a sanctuary, listening to sacred music or waiting for the news of a loved one coming out of surgery. For the disciples, their theophany happened locked up in a room and the sound is of a rush of a mighty wind descended upon them as tongues of fire. An unexpected moment when God appears and we're convinced of God's presence, of God's existence. And usually it doesn't happen in some supernatural pyrotechnic moment. More often, it happens to the likes of you and me in gentle and quiet ways. For me, it happened in my office as I was making the decision to become a minister. Don't ask me to explain it, just take my word. That sitting in my office in Fort Lauderdale as I was contemplating taking a new job, that God was as real for me in that moment, that God's call to my life was as real as the wood of this pulpit. And if we had time right now, we could spend the next several minutes sharing with one another our own personal moments where we had an encounter with the living God. But I'll leave that up to you. Maybe you can do it over coffee hour. But the truth is, not only have we likely had those moments, but like Pascal, we also maybe have not sewn them into our coats, but maybe sewn them into our souls. We are who we are because of the encounters that we have had with God.
Viktor Frankl, the Holocaust survivor and author of Man's Search for Meaning, recounts that just prior to his detainment and transfer to Auschwitz, he took the magnum opus of his life, his doctoral dissertation, and sewed it into the lining of his coat. It was his last and best chance, he thought, of holding on to his life's work, and of course, as soon as he arrived at the camp, they took his coat. And with it, he thought his life. Shortly after, he was given a coat of another prisoner who had been taken to the chambers, and he put it on. And he reached into the pocket of that coat, and on, in that pocket was a scrap of paper. And on that scrap of paper were the words of the Shema, the most sacred of Jewish prayers. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And Frankel said, at that moment, with that little piece of paper in hand, in a concentration camp, God became real. Each one of us has a theophany stitched inside of our souls. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke do their best to describe for us the encounter that Peter, James, and John have had with Jesus on top of this holy mountain. And the truth is that it is an experience that I'm not sure any one of us is really supposed to understand. The changing face of Jesus, dazzling white clothing, apparitions of prophets past, clouds descending, voices speaking. I don't know about you, but it's all a little bit too much. Maybe a lot much for us to understand. And so at the end of it all, we can maybe understand why Luke reports that Peter, James, and John, after having this experience, keep silent, and they tell no one. Because who would dare to venture such a story? Who could ever understand someone else's experience of theophany? It reminds me of Lucy in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and quite by accident, she makes her way to the back of the wardrobe. And all of a sudden, she finds herself in a strange land that will she will soon learn is Narnia. And it's a very real land of fawns and witches and the great lion Aslan. It's very real to Lucy. And when she comes back and she tries to tell her brothers and sisters, they think she's gone crazy. Silly talk of Narnia. No one is really supposed to understand. You know, no one understands our individual, deeply personal experiences that we have with the transcendent. Do you remember the shepherds of Bethlehem? Do you ever wonder what happened eventually when they went home to their wives and their friends and their family and they tried to explain what went on? Following a bright star, angels appearing and singing, a babe lying in a manger, peace on earth, goodwill to men, the promise of the Messiah. You can almost imagine what their wives said, you better take away the flask. But it was real. And these are encounters that are stitched inside, not inside of our coats, but inside of our souls, and they're real. And with these experiences, there's nothing more powerful than the divine reality that lives within. You know, there are many things that I wonder about this world, but I, what I do not wonder about is about how God has appeared in my life. 
and reminded me through the ages that I'm never alone, that God loves me, and that life is full of meaning. If I have any power in my life, if there's any purpose to my days, it all traces back to what is stitched inside of my soul. It makes me think of a young woman that I knew once up in Massachusetts. We'll call her Julie. Julie had a pretty horrific childhood, centered around many years of abuse at the hands of a family member. And Julie remembers during those years as a young girl praying that God would stop the awful attacks. But God never did. Never stepped in. Never stepped in like a child would expect a loving God would. So it was easy for her to not believe. No Pascal's wager for Julie. Until one morning as a middle-aged woman, she stopped at a local convenience store and down the street she heard church bells ring. It was a church that I attended, and for some reason she knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that that church bell rang for her. She didn't know why, she just knew. And she decided to go to that place. It happened to be a Sunday, and we were all gathered there to weep and to console each other in the wake of a horrific tragedy that, that occurred in our church family. A father who took his own life and that of his two young children. And she sat there. And she watched this church family trying as best they could to love one another through their grief. And she heard the message loud and clear for the first time that God doesn't make these awful things happen. That God doesn't want these awful things to happen. But that God loves us through each other when these awful things happen. And that was her theophany. That was the moment that she jumped into the life of the family of faith, using every gift that she had to share the love that she had received from God in that moment. And a church bell became for her her theophany. The power of God's love for her became the power of God's love through her for other people. Did you hear what I said? The power of God's love for her became the power of God's love through her for other people. It's in these moments of our life when we're reminded of the unmistakable, powerful presence of God. These are the notes that are stitched into our souls, that there is a power that is intended for God's people. It may explain why the gospel writers are insisting to include a story that happens when they come down off the mountain, a story that they are quickly stitching into their souls. The first thing that they encounter when they come down off the mountain is a man who is desperate for power, a father who is at the end of his rope, and his son who has been possessed with some evil spirit, and no one knows what to do. And Jesus is so disappointed that no one seems to think that they have the power to do anything that this power of God's love with which that they have been entrusted is a power for this father and son. You see, that's the point of these intimate, private encounters that we have with the transcendent. They are not intended just for ourselves. 
These personal notes of divine encounters stitched into our souls are the very power that God uses to propel us into the hearts of the world. Because you see, it is the presence of God that is a reminder that this world is not just every man out for himself. It's not to see who dies with the most toys or the bottom line to some spreadsheet or how much we have in our 401k that determines the gold medal. It's these encounters with God that tell us that we don't have to hedge our bets. These encounters with God are as real as the sun pouring through these stained glass windows. That God is love. That God loves me. And that God loves through me, God's world. That's why I think it is safe to say that the most real thing that you will do in your life is what you will do for someone else. The most genuine gesture in your life is your sacrifice for someone else. The most real use of your time is the time that you give to someone else. Maybe that's what Charles Dickens had in mind when he wrote his tale of Ebenezer Scrooge. The old miserly man counting every last penny of his life and comes to see at the visit of the spirits that these visits are more real to him than the gold that he has in his safe. And the first of the visits is from the ghost of Jacob Marley. Marley, his business partner, who is just as miserly as Scrooge. And Scrooge can't understand why Marley, the ghost, is bound and changed. And Marley speaks of having missed a great opportunity in his life. And Scrooge says, but you were always a good man in business, Jacob. And Marley cries, business. Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence, these were my business. The dealings of my trade were a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. You know, somewhere along the way, each one of us has been visited. The bell has tolled, God's spirit has appeared, and a fire has been present. And the note that is written and stitched inside is the most real thing that may have ever happened in your life. And the most real thing yet to happen is what you do with it. What we make our business is what's stitched inside of our souls. Amen. Amen.